Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hi, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andrew. Today, our guest on the Music Buzz Podcast is acclaimed singer, songwriter, and musician, Mark Broussard. He's an artist with a unique gift of channeling the spirits of classic R&B, rock, and soul into contemporary terms. He's the son of Louisiana Hall of Fame guitarist Ted Broussard of the Boogie Kings. He nurtured his musical gifts at an early age in the vibrant Lafayette, Louisiana music scene. Also, he has a new record uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, SOS 4, Blues for Your Soul, that has distinctive renditions of blues and soul classics. Plus one original song as well. And that is produced by Joe Bonamassa and Josh Smith. So welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Mark Broussard. Ah, uh, thanks for having me. Sure love your new record, man. Oh, uh, thank you very much. We uh we we had a ball making that thing, man. It had me dancing around the kitchen table this morning. And I, I don't really like music that much <laughs> and, uh, anymore. But I really enjoyed it. I liked the way that you guys have kind of captured all the different genres of blues and soul in a unique way. It it, it reminds me of the sixties on like, uh, I'd rather be, uh, drinking muddy water. It's got that bar room feel into the funk, the funky stuff. You know, that's what love will make you do driving wheel, the stuff with Joe, that's just killer stuff. How did you pick the songs for this project? How'd you go about doing that? Well, for each one of these SOS albums, uh, this is uh, number four that that we did with Joe. Um, each one of these albums, they're, they're covers albums that I use to raise money for charitable p- causes that I'm passionate about. And so nice. Um, I, I try to get all the stakeholders involved. So my management, um, the guys in the band, producer, anybody that has any any interest in, in helping out on the projects, I say, go put together some playlists. Go put a playlist together of songs that you want to hear on this album. Cool. And then and then I cross-reference those playlists. Uh, if there are any duplicates, those typically would go on automatically. Then we kind of just democratically go through the rest of it together. Um, this one was a little different, though. Josh had a playlist okay. that, that had about 25 songs on it. 
and um, I sort of pulled right right from his playlist. In fact, he he asked me one day. He was like, uh, "What? So, which songs are you thinking?" And I sent the songs that I was thinking, and he said, "That's a pretty good list." And hmm. I'm almost positive I haven't asked him, but I'm pretty sure that he built that playlist knowing exactly where I would land with the with the songs. What a great playlist to choose from! It sure is. Uh... It's a wonderful project. I like the driving wheel song. You know, it's got like a kind of a modern Mad Dogs and Englishman vibe, I thought. And your voice is so, uh, I read somewhere it was called Bayou Bread Baritone, and it's uh, on full display on this record. That Al Green tune was really the beast of the the, the album. I have so much respect for Al and his music oh, and, and his approach. And uh, I was really scared of that song, man. It It's not. Like there are certain Al Green songs that I, I feel like I can sing in my sleep. This one is not one of them. This one is it's got so much going on in the vocal that is sort of undetectable. There's just all this little nuance that um, that I didn't know if I could if I could really get into. So I, I actually didn't sing um, uh, Driving Wheel until like four months or five months after tracking when those guys came down to, to South Louisiana in my backyard uh, to record an album with Mike Zito. I, I waited. Uh, I sang everything else when we were tracking, but you uh, work, working up the time. nerve. Yeah. Oh, really? I needed more time with Al Green. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, when I heard your voice today, just spent time listening to, apart from the fact that I, I love what you guys do off the floor. I mean, you, as a, as a group of musicians, I was just thinking, what a great band, you know, and then suddenly, the camera pans over and there's Joe. Okay. There's a good reason right there. <laughs> but I'm hearing Sam Cook. I'm hearing Dr. John. I'm hearing all kinds of. Paul I, Rogers a little bit on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got to use my imagination. You know, just all those guys are the greatest singers in the world. So applause taking, to you, man. I'm, I'm taking the compliments. Trust me. <laughs> the intro I was mentioning, you know, being raised in Louisiana and your dad and, and all that history there. Can you take us back to kind of when the light bulb went off for you, kind of what that was like for you as far as your influences go and, and growing up uh, with that in, in that environment? So my father is a brilliant musician. He's a great guitar player and a wonderful dad, really, really great man. He kind of found out I could sing when I was about five and a half years old. I was, I was watching Back to the Future. I kept singing Johnny Be Good over and over again. We're just repeating the hook, you know. And uh, my dad says, you want to learn that song? Yeah, dad. So he comes home the next day and teaches me the words. He had printed them out at, at, at work. He had a dot matrix printer and printed out these lyrics. I couldn't read. I don't know why he printed them out. I think he printed them out for himself. <laughs> couldn't um, read yet, but no. So luckily, my memory <laughs> is pretty great. good. And uh, I memorized those lyrics as quickly as I could. And then he just started playing and I started singing in key and uh, sang it through the whole way in key and then he said let's do it again and so he starts playing again and the second verse he modulated up a half step and i followed him and third oh. verse he modulated up again and i followed him again and he was like put me on stage that weekend he, he was always gigging around town with with either his own band or various dance hall bands and top 40 bands and whatnot so i wasn't always invited but if it was an all-ages venue or a venue that would appropriate was appropriate enough I would roadie for him for years. This happened for, you know, basically until I became a, a, a grown man. Did the kid in you um, have anything to do with why you cast the boy in uh, Cutting In? No, I, I'm, I just, I've had the idea to do a video with, with small 
kids for years. And yeah. it was a song that I did years ago called Yes Man. Uh-huh. It's actually really inspired by this movie, this Jack Black and Most Deaf film called Be Kind Rewind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that film. And uh, and at the end, they they accidentally like erase all the tapes in this movie store and they have yeah. to go and reshoot all these tapes. And one of them is this Fats Waller movie that they that they originated. They didn't weren't reshooting anything. They were shooting this Fats Waller documentary or something. And they used a bunch of kids to play all the parts. It was really, really cute. So yeah. ever since I saw that, I wanted to do a video with kids. And when I read the treatment for cutting in, I just didn't feel like I was the right guy to to like be moping around the room. In a ballroom, no less. Yeah, that, it's that, a cool that ain't video. me. That ain't me. That kid uh, was pretty decent. His lip syncing was pretty impressive. He's the very talented kid, and according to his mother, he is all about acting. Uh, they drove in from Austin, Texas, actually. Cool. Drove wow. six hours and, and and stayed overnight. Took the kid out of school to to do it. So I think he's dead set on on being in front of the camera. That one. Very well, it's cool. interesting. You're the second person that we've talked to, Mark, from Louisiana, who grew up, you know, with a dad that was in a pivotal position. The other person we talked to is Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Oh, nice. Kenny Wayne on a few months ago and must be something in the water down there or something, um, you know, that you had that kind of support system in place. Really cool. And it's for sharing that. It's it's been a heck of a ride with with my dad. Well, and and so after I, I hit about 16 or 17, there was a local um, songwriters night and I had been writing a few songs. So my dad takes me down there one night. Uh, I impress everybody there and we go back a few times in the, in the ensuing weeks. And then the club owner comes and says, hey. Uh, we want you guys to give us every Friday night. There's a concert series downtown Lafayette every Friday night in the spring and fall called Downtown Alive. And they said, we want you guys to play afterwards. Cool. So my dad called up some friends and we put together a little band Great. and and put together a four hour you know show with James Taylor and Kenny Loggins and mm. just uh, as many songs as we could. And I would mix in my originals. Yeah, and that's kind of how things got rolling around here. And in pretty short order, after I graduated high school, we were selling enough tickets to to get the attention of the labels in New York. So your roots, you know, your influences, you just mentioned two people I really, really enjoy, which is James Taylor and Kenny Loggins. Who else did you listen to in that era that just spoke spoke to you musically and vocally? Well, I really the first album I ever purchased, uh, I was riding with my dad somewhere and Brian McKnight's One Last Cry came on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard a voice that good, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Stevie Wonder has been a huge influence on me, but Brian McKnight was was of my era. You know what I mean? It was something that I felt like I could sink my teeth into. Yeah. And um, man, I, sure. I saved up some money and went and buy that Brian McKnight self-titled album. And I lived on that thing for years. I mean, I lived on Brian McKnight for years. He was sort of my only only guy. Uh, it wasn't until I found Donny Hathaway that I really, really started to wave that flag. I'm, I'm over here waving that Donny Hathaway oh, flag. Yeah, okay. I think he's the finest, sure. finest vocalist that's ever lived. Male vocalist. Now, backing up a little bit, you mentioned your philanthropic angle. Obviously, this is the fourth in the series, correct? That's right. Talk a little bit about the philanthropies, if you will, or nonprofits sure. and stuff that you, uh, that you do support yeah. through this. It was really um, a function of not having access to record revenue when I was on the major labels and thus not needing it for my family's needs um, because I never saw it. Right. So once I went independent about 
10 uh, 12 years ago um all of a sudden i have this revenue coming my way that i didn't need for my family's needs and so i said to myself let's this money that used to keep the lights on in office buildings in new york and la let's use this money to keep the lights on for people that need to keep the lights on right it was an, it was kind of a no brainer for me it, my managers were not excited about the idea cuz i was i was broke when we went independent we were we were really taking a chance I knew we weren't taking that big a chance, but they were under the impression my managers, my new managers at the time were, were under the impression that we were in dire straits. And I said, this is going to work. Trust me, this is going to work. It's going to be better than you can Im imagine. And it was, it, it, that's exactly what happened. SOS two brought me over to Holland for the first time, uh, which is the biggest market for me selling tickets in the world. Uh, brought me to Europe for the first time. Mm. It, it got me into, uh, festival shows and 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 just shows in general that i probably wouldn't have had access to before uh the critics loved it the, they, they loved the whole story the, the press loved the whole story it just worked on all fronts and in many ways that i didn't even predict yeah uh, i just knew that i wanted to help people and so the first charity project that we did was a partnership with a group out of atlanta called city of refuge it's a really comprehensive homeless women's and children's program that boasts something like 98% success getting people off the streets forever. There's a, a state accredited culinary training program on site. They have a catering service that they, they the, these ladies that live in the facility and their, uh, their kids go to school, K through 12 Academy on site. Um, they, wow. they use the catering services to help generate revenue for the, for the facility as well as pay these ladies. Uh, and then the ladies come out with, with, some real marketable skills that they can take anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Super comprehensive program. And and I was overjoyed to be able to support them in the way we did. Then uh, there was a brand Perfect. new St. Jude affiliate hospital that, that got opened up here in uh, Baton Rouge, not probably about 10 years ago, I want to say. And it expanded our region's ability to deal with chronic and terminal childhood illness uh, mm. by, by an unimaginable way. Uh, portion most of these families in louisiana that had these kind of issues with their kids had to go to houston for forever and and it wasn't until our lady of the lakes children's hospital in baton rouge that these families could stay in louisiana and uh and so i felt really good about supporting them and then it comes time for the next one uh sos4 and i was really i had my heart set on on doing something uh around incarceration whether it was dealing with the business community about about educating the business community about the tax credits available for hiring ex-cons uh, or just any organization that was on the ground doing good work around these issues. And luckily, Joe's organization had worked with Guitars Over Guns down in Miami mm -hmm. for years. Uh, and so they yeah. suggested it. And we took a look at the organization and loved what they, what they were doing. And it was a no-brainer to pull the trigger on it. So those are the three charity organizations. Even though this is a SOS4, the first SOS was was a result of being let go on uh, uh, let go out of my record contract with Island Def Jam mm. after having made a second my sophomore attempt for for Island Def Jam uh, was shelved and I asked to be let go and they said yeah you can go but you can't have that album and so we were like mm. three years out from the previous album we needed a new record just to even be able to get the promoters on the phone to book shows. Sure. I didn't have time to go back and write original stuff. 
Hmm. So we decided to do a covers album. So that first SOS was really a charity project for yours. I was going to say, that, that was for the <laughs> yeah. Broussard charity. Yeah. So yeah. There you go. Well, hey, sometimes you got to do that too, you know? No doubt. Good no for doubt. you, man, for doing this. I mean, I, Yeah, that's know, really I, awesome, man. Applause to you. That's yeah. fantastic. So tell us about where the connection and relationship with Joe Bonamassa start for you. Well, I've known Joe for years. We did his his Caribbean cruise, I don't know, probably 12 years ago or something like that. Okay. Um, and we've always been acquaintances and friendly. Uh, but one of my best friends, my first sideman, a guy named Calvin Turner, um, I, I've I've used Calvin as a as a resource for everything from string and horn arranging and bass and drums to uh to just being my my confidant. He and I have been really close for the last 23 years or so. So I reached out to him just to pick his brain about this blues album that I was planning on doing. And he said, you know, I've been doing some work for Joe and Josh uh, for the last two years doing horn and string arranging. I think you should call them. They, I think they would love to, to help you on this project. Good call. I, I reached yeah. out. Yeah. It was a great call. Uh, I said, look, do me a favor and grease that wheel. I'll reach out from my end and uh, and we'll see if we can't make it happen. I reached out hoping that they would just help me pick songs and and maybe give me some guidance. Um, but they were adamant that they wanted to produce the record and Joe wanted it to awesome. come out on his record label and they wanted to be partners all the way down. I said, Joe, you know, we give this money away. And he said, yeah, I don't care about that. I just want to oh. make the album with you. So nice. Uh, it great. was a very, very natural, organic kind of a process. <clears throat> um, and they, Joe really stepped up, you know, he, he, he and his, his record label put up, quite a bit of money to make this thing happen. I put up a uh, match. Those they basically matched the funds yeah. and uh, it's been a beautiful partnership. That's awesome, man. Well, a few years ago, you know, Hugh started doing a, his own Instagram account posting on there and hearing from people. And he got a message from Kevin Shirley uh, nice. producer and said, Hey, I want to talk to you. And uh, that's where the connection with uh, Hugh work doing the, uh, doing the artwork for the last record and working on the new one as well. And a perfect segue, I might say, to talk about album artwork. So I'll kick it over to Hugh to, to, to talk about that. <laughs> sure. You, you think you'd done this before? I'm, I'm a professional. Yeah. <laughs> now, the um, the call from Kevin was kind of unusual because I had just discovered Joe a couple of years prior. I thought, oh, shit, this guy's really good. He sings well. He plays. He writes well. He plays well. And then, then you know, I, I kept listening to him. And out of nowhere, I get a, an Instagram message um, thanks to Andy for insisting that I come out of my hermitage because I tend to just hide from the world. Um, and Kevin, who I typeset his name on Dream Theater and Iron Maiden and other projects that I'd worked on, but I'd never really been aware of who he was. So he called me in on Joe's project, which I'm really glad he did because you know it's an honor working with him. Um, and then it led to the second project, which we just finished the artwork for. hasn't hasn't been launched or anything, but yeah, it's it's in the can, so to speak. Um, so you, you obviously, are, you know, you've got, um, I mean, the new uh, SOS 4 has a really torchy blue cover. I love the silhouette on that cover. Tell me about your your feelings on artwork. You know, how did it affect you as a, a young consumer or even a consumer today? How involved are you in your own artwork when you're, when you're developing your own project and your own covers? Or do you just do the music and allow that to kind of be handled by other people? So I'm sort of um, my career has been I, I think I, I can define my career best by saying that uh, it's been a slow process of me taking reins. 
So when I first started at 20 years old, I just assumed that that I had arrived. I assumed that that because Island Def Jam signed me, that I was on the gravy train that ran forever. Right. And all I had to do was show up and do my job. Right, sure. I was I was sadly very very mistaken there. Um, and it took a very long time for me. It took about a decade for me to realize just how how wrong I was. Yeah. So I finally mm. really grabbed the reins creatively on the music side. Uh, when I went independent, I, I really grabbed the reins and and a life worth living is the first album that I did um, after leaving the majors. I was on Vanguard for that project, but it was really my, my first effort into really owning everything that that you heard on the album and owning the artwork as well. Mm -hmm. This project, I tried to get Joe when they were down here making that Mike Zito album. Uh, I said, I said, real quick, Joe, I'm going to bring a photographer over. We just need to get this silhouette shot. And uh, and it, you, you won't even see us much at all. I just need so to that is this. Joe. That's killing it's, you. Well, it's not a photograph. It's it's all it's all digital art. Oh, okay. Uh, because Joe wasn't in the mood to take a picture that day. He was like, oh, I, uh, oh I'm not camera no. ready. I'm not camera ready right now. And I said, oh. well, you, you don't really have to be camera ready for it. It's just a silhouetted shot back there. But all good. I got a guy that can do it. I have a friend of mine here is an, an elite animator and illustrator, a guy by the name of Ryan Golden out of Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to Ryan. I said, look, this is the shot that I need. It's me and Joe sitting across from each other with a record player in the background and then maybe a guitar. We're smoking some cigars or something. And we're just talking about, about music. And, yeah. uh, and that's exactly what he, what he presented. It, I, I don't think it took him 30 minutes to, to turn in the first, the first iteration of what, what you see on that cover. Yeah. It looks great. It's, it's got a great mood. Good feel. Definitely a lot of cigars Very going cool. on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, Joe, I've yet to meet Joe to your point about him being, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly not a, a hermit. He goes on stage and kills it, but um, yeah. He's a very interesting guy. He's yeah. uh, he's he's extremely talented, first of all. Yeah. And um, but but he's exceptionally humble. Yeah. You know, as a player, he can smoke everybody. He's, mm -hmm. he's the monster guitar player. Yeah. But he has no qualms whatsoever about taking a back seat to yeah. the guys in his own band. I mean, yeah. Josh is sure. Josh is a monster guitar player as well. Yeah. Joe has no issue whatsoever letting Josh take the spotlight. My guitar player came in as well, and you know, bringing a, bringing a guitar player to a session where Joe Bonamassa is is a guitar player on on the record. No pressure like, there, right? That's <laughs> like bringing water to the to the ocean. It's not necessary, but but Joe is very very gracious in giving up that chair. Um, he's an exceptionally kind human being, but he he does tend to go off the grid every once in a while. You know, yeah. Tough to get a hold of him sometimes. Well, he's never he's never been on my grid. Is my point. I, I'm delighted sure. to be working with him, but you know, I, I generally work through management and through Kevin, his producer. He eventually sees it, approves it, and that's all I care about. There you go. I was going to ask you about the live record. I, I listened to the live record called uh, "From Full Sail University" today. Uh, is that so? You said you were talking about your band. I mean, it doesn't sound like a bunch of session guys on the new record. It sounds like a band. Is that the same? Have you kept the same players over the years? No, unfortunately. And th this is this band was Joe's band. This is Lamar okay, Carter Joe, on drums, okay. uh, Calvin okay. on bass, Josh Smith on guitar, and then Jeff Babco. So we didn't get Reese, but we got Jeff Babco on keys. So this is this is all Joe's band. Okay, but uh, 
Those are the guys on Use My Imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's all yeah. it's all Joe's band the, on, yeah. on this blues album. I've had okay. a series of bands over the years. I've probably had, I don't know, uh, an average of four to five guys in each chair. Right. Um, and and the the guy that I had in the drum chair for 18 years uh, left during COVID. He's building houses now. Um, so I had to, I basically in the last two years had to rebuild a band that I had for a very, very long time, about 10. Uh, 10 that could be difficult. Yeah. It's been a, been a hell of a journey, man. I've been through five drummers in the last two years, uh, three or four bass players. It's been, it's been a heck of a journey to try and reassemble uh, a band. Um, not only, not only to keep the people and to keep, you know, to keep it cohesive, but to get what it is you want, what you're after. If you have a band that you've been with for so long, just trying to, whip up that chemistry <laughs> again must be yeah that band on that live record i mean drummer was really funky he, he was a good That's, he was a good player i could tell there was a lot more restraint on the blues for your soul project but it's normally in the studio you lay yeah, back chad, a little bit but chad gilmore was the drummer that was on uh on the life uh live from full sale chad was okay. my guy basically my entire career i i i think chad missed six gigs in uh in, in 18 years He's a house builder now. He was my guy, though. I mean, he was not only my drummer, he was my tour manager for the last decade that he worked with me. And he's wow. a fantastic, fantastic dude. Oh, wow. One of my oh, dearest man. friends in the world. So losing him was a big loss. It was yeah, big shoes to fill. Awesome. And um, finding a replacement in the state of Louisiana was was near impossible for whatever reason. It's that chair is tough to replace, man. When you got yeah. a guy that's been there for yeah, that man. long, especially, it's very, very difficult to replace. Does he miss it? Yeah, I mean, when you talk to him, I mean, he does... still plays. So he's got a cover band. He, they do, you know, weddings and and uh, office parties and whatnot, and they do very right. well. He does. Yeah. He does quite a bit better nowadays, building houses and doing an after party uh, than he was with me. He mm. he did well with me, but he's doing quite quite a bit better. Um, on his own now so well the I, housing I, market's real good right now so you know uh he's working for a firm out of new orleans that that builds twenty thousand, thirty thousand square foot homes they're they're really really high-end builders and they have i think 30 10 000 plus square foot homes going up right now so everybody needs 10 bedrooms <laughs> yeah so i was listening to your music the other day knowing we we're going to talk to you today and i was working on my computer just kind of listening as i was working and these arms of mine comes on and as and i kind of stopped for a second i'm like man he sounds like huey lewis a lot hmm. keep on working keep on working it's like damn he, he's almost like a dead ringer for huey lewis keep on working i'm like hold on a second <laughs> and so i just had never heard that song of course i google it and there it is mark broussard with huey lewis like, sure. that's why he sounds like Huey Lewis because that's Huey Lewis. So, but I, I, as I delved a little bit more, that's I mean, fun. you've done, you've done songs with Leanne Rhymes. We're talking about working with Joe Bonamassa. It's gotta be a cool spot for you to be able to work with a country artist, work with a pop artist, work with a blues artist. And that's a really cool place to be. Do you feel like you just organically got to that spot or, or have you yeah. thought of that? I guess. No, I, I think it was pretty organic. One of the, the biggest rewards you can get in any business is to have the respect of your contemporaries. Yeah. And, uh, and no question. It, it's certainly, certainly been a, a big boost of confidence to me to see, to see other artists in the crowd or to, to reach out to somebody cold and, and have them pick up the phone 
and uh, and respond positively to a, a request to guest on a record or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and and so far, I, I I've been able to call anybody and everybody that I want to and have them respond positively. So that's great. Um, it's been so who, very. Who's your very dream artist that you have that you that you haven't worked with that you're like, man, I'd love to have this person. Um, there's a gal named Emily King. She's she's a young female artist that I adore. I think she's brilliant. There's another gal named Madison Cunningham that okay. I recently discovered that I think is brilliant. Um, working with Stevie would be a dream come true for sure. Yeah. Uh, oh I, yeah. Man. I wish that no I'd kidding. been able to. I wish that I had been able to hang out with Prince before he passed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so. Yeah. Those are some pretty different. Those are some. <laughs> choices yeah <laughs> those are I some mean, pretty good choices yeah pretty yeah. good choices there well uh -huh. i heard prince i heard prince like to like to hang out after shows at pool halls and mm. uh and shoot pool and he yeah, liked to know. play shows after shows yeah i, was gonna say, I, I knew some of the guys in his well. band yeah he'd play his show and then they'd go to a club and play till six in the morning i know it's insane uh, I, a I, lot we had a show crazy in stuff. Two, I don't know how 2001 in indianapolis at the Murat one time and i don't even remember what album he was touring on but he did you know two and a half hour show what a great then, venue yeah and then afterwards comes off and says you know we we need a venue we're going to keep playing and at the time we were we were uh, booking this small venue in town called birdies that was literally a hole in the wall and yes i i can vouch for that i've played there it's a hole in the wall <laughs> Held maybe 500 people at you know at most and they oh, went crammed. there and they yeah, they went in there and played a set for like two hours. And it was it was like hits top to bottom set too. It was almost like the show at Birdies is probably the one all those people really paid that uh -huh. wanted to see at Mirage, you know, not that they weren't both great, but yeah, he absolutely did that kind of stuff. He was, was uh amazing. he was a rare bird mm -hmm. to say the least. Boy, no kidding. But I've heard great stories about Stevie Wonder, a buddy of mine that works for uh for Live Nation here in Louisiana was the promoter rep on the Songs of Nikia Life Tour. And he said Stevie showed up to the arena at 10 o'clock in the morning. Soundcheck wasn't until four. Mm. And Stevie spent six hours walking the arena to shake the hands of everybody that worked there that wanted to shake wow. his hand. Janitors, so cool. ticket takers, session cool. people, you name it. And then played the show, played a whole three-hour Songs in the Key of Life show, and then immediately went to a, a, a meet and greet where he, it was just Stevie and a Kurzweil and it was like this. Hey, Stevie, you mind if uh, you mind, mind playing Isn't She Lovely while my wife sits on your lap so I can take a picture? <laughs> and, and he just starts playing. Sure, he just starts playing Isn't She Lovely and, and, and tapping it's his it. lap to come sit down. That's funny. And then the band went to Frenchman Street and took over a, a, a club on Frenchman till like three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So I, my, my, ego, yeah. my ego died. Uh, you know, when I saw Prince live actually in Knoxville years ago on the musicology tour mm -hmm. after one of our shows there. Um, my ego took, took a real beating that night. Mm. Uh, I cried several times realizing that, Oh, that's, that's something that I don't think I'll ever get to. Yeah. No, um, quite a performer, then, man. Oh, yeah. he's the best, the best that I've ever seen. Have you seen Stevie live? Cause I got to see him open up for the Rolling Stones in 1972 when I was 12. Wow. Right, but super superstition hadn't been released yet, but he played it that night. I I remember oh, it vividly. Wow. It was unbelievable. Yeah I, yeah, I got to see Stevie uh, at New Orleans Jazz Fest probably I don't know fifteen years ago or so, and uh, was just in heaven, man, sitting out in that yeah. field 
I, my, my son was, uh, probably about six years old. I took him, took him along. I took him out of school and took him along for the, for the show. We had a ball, man. That's awesome. Now, have any of you been to the uh, Hitsville museum up in Detroit? Have you guys been there? I have. Have you? I've been there. I've my, been my there. Son, my son and I were there last, last summer. We went up to see the chili peppers and we went, we stopped by there. I love where they had the candy machine in there where they had the, the change on top where they used to leave the change for Stevie. Uh, oh, like yeah, get, yeah, that's right. His candy and stuff. I, that was awesome. They, you know, and it definitely looked like they hadn't touched it since then. And those candy yeah. bars were pretty nasty in there by now. But <laughs> I think it was Baby Ruth that they said he loves. When you sit down to write a song, what's what's your approach? Do you, lyrics come first, or does it music, melody, chord progression? It's happened a bunch of different ways for me. Um, lately, I've been enjoying writing to instrumental tracks. So I've, uh -huh. I've worked with a few different producers who are very good at track building. And uh, I just like fielding, you know, fielding tracks from them, kind of come in the lab here in my in my home studio. And uh, typically what will happen is I'll I'll get like a phrase of, of I'll get the the um, the syntax down, you know, yeah. I'll get the mm. uh, syllables in place. Yeah. Phrase and sure. then just kind of start to shoehorn lyrics into those into those syllables. That's yeah. Um, and I'll track a I'll track once a you comp. have a melody. Yeah, exactly. I'll track yeah. a comp vocal as I'm writing the song. So I'll I'll pull out my little you know word processor and type up a, a lyric, go ahead and sing that line or sing that verse, and I just build the comp as I go. Um, and that's actually how I've that's a, that's how I've turned in some of the final vocals on some of the newer stuff that we put out. Uh, so it's kind of gone a bunch of different ways. I've done traditional writing sessions with other writers where we sit across the room from each other and bat around ideas and, um, you know, work on it together. Uh, but I, I'm really fond of this approach where I, I, I just get a track in and, uh, and I, I have all day to sit with it and mess but with it. But the track comes in as there's no melody. Just a, it's just, just a track. track. Yep. Relying on you track. to find the melody and you to find. Yeah, cool. It's you're a not, lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Not, I feel like I got a lot of freedom in that in that space to be able to do that. And sure. it's the kind of thing where I'll bounce I'll bounce my ideas back to the to the track writer and I'll say, "Hey, is this cool? Is this is this not?" And if they say, eh, "I think you can do better," I, I get to wipe it all clean and start from scratch, approach yeah. it with a totally different approach. Uh, so it's a lot of fun for me. I, I enjoy doing it that way. Yeah, you know, T Bone Burnett turned us on what he produced a record for uh uh john mellencamp of 2008 i think and spent some time and he was telling us i forget what record they were making but he'd like to take a song that was already recorded and take that chord progression and then write new melody and lyrics over it which you can do now because you can buy that app for about five dollars on your phone where it'll take the vocals away sure. so you can do that to any song in the world you know it's an interesting approach i thought yeah, yeah, I agree, man. I, you know, um, I think it's his mother-in-law was by Eddie Bo. Was it by Eddie Bo? But he's got wh whoever it was by. He's got another song called uh, Get Out of My House. That's exactly the, the same song. So it's like he's got mother-in-law, mother-in-law, mother-in-law. And then he's got get out of my house. Yeah. Get out of my da, da, da. house. <laughs> same me exact sure. melody. I'm pretty sure it's ex not only is it the same melody, but I'm sure he's talking to the same person. I think oh, he's sure. Talking to the mother. Chuck Berry was Chuck Berry was pretty good at kind of getting all, a lot of stuff that was pretty similar to using oh, yeah. those same three chords and melody. 
you're not alone in that approach. I always find it fascinating. I, I heard where McCartney will sit like you do to find the syllables and the phonetic, the guideposts, you know, through the process, but he'll just sit and mumble until some phonetics make sense. And then he'll start, well, that's an E word, you know, that's got to, that's got to be an E word, you know? Sure. Yeah. That, well, Lenin, Lenin used to take somebody else's first line, like, come together here come old flat top he come grooving up slowly he'd yeah. start his song with that and then he'd usually replace it he just forgot to do it on come together <laughs> yeah he did and then he had to pay royalties you know because that's from you can't catch me by chuck berry say whoops yeah. he didn't go back and replace the first line i saw i saw this documentary years ago on pbs called john lennon's jukebox that i cannot find i can't find hmm. it anywhere It'll write that down. It was an amazing documentary. It was one of the coolest shows I ever saw. It was an actual jukebox of 45s that John Lennon owned. And they went and I've found heard about the ju- they, they went and found all the artists that were still alive that were in that jukebox. And man, I'll never forget. I don't remember who the guy was. It was a one 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 hit wonder guy from Memphis. Um, and and they got him on the camera. And he's in his, he's all decked out. He's got black silk shirt on. He's got black pants on. He's got a big old black cowboy hat on. And he's looking sharp. And and they say, so yeah, how's it feel? Because he had written this guitar line that John lifted. I don't remember what the songs were, but John straight lifted this riff. And uh, and they say to the guy, so how's it feel to be uh, to have influenced John Lennon in such a such a dramatic way? And it was it was like the guy had never thought about the question before. Uh-huh. He, he says, he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought uh, he might have said, how about show me some money, man? Yeah, He's still exactly, my lick, you know, but that's exactly no, that, what he was thinking. <laughs> that's cool. <though. laughs> yeah. How about that? How about show me the money? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Love that. That's great. I'll have to look up that. I'd, I'd heard about that, and I'd heard some of the songs that were on the on the jukebox. But it was uh, a really, really well cool. done documentary, and and like I said, they were able to go and find some of these artists that were in that jukebox, totally, totally obscure artists that that John had found, and uh, and sit down and interview those guys, and you could tell several of them had had no idea that John Lennon even existed. Uh, wow. So it's right, a really sure. interesting doc. Huh. Wow, check that out. So we always like to ask some questions about the live side. So as a fan, and you, you've alluded to some of the, some of the artists you like the best. Um, what was the first concert that you went to as a fan that you uh, remember? Oh, I want to say it was Michael Bolton and Kenny okay. G. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was probably about 11 years old, 12 years old, something like that. Okay. Uh, and I was floored. I mean, Michael Bolton is still a, a phenomenal singer. He's yeah. maybe, maybe no one question. of the best singers I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, and it was my, my love for his music was rekindled a few years ago. He did a Valentine's Day special that was amazing. There was uh, it was it was Lonely Island. So Andy Samberg, it was a Valentine's Day special where the birth rate had dropped so low that uh, Christmas was getting canceled. So Michael Bolton was enlisted to to help spur birth rates on Valentine's Day. Just to just to make a successful <laughs> Christmas happen. Wow! Okay. And it's like a it's like a telethon, but instead of people pledging money, they're just calling in to say that they conceived a child. Right. It was wow. an amazing doc, and Michael sings all over the thing, and it uh-huh. sings really, really well all over the thing. Um. So I've always been a big fan of Michael. 
And I want to say after that, it was probably a boys to men concert a few years later mm-hmm. that I had saved up some money too. And that was actually really unfortunate because I was a huge fan of theirs, massive fan. And their show, the, oh, 98 Degrees opened the show and mm. basically wiped the floor with them. No, really? 98 Degrees put them under the table. Yeah. Uh, Boys to Men, their, their show started with the guys coming up from underneath the stage in these tubes mm-hmm. that opened, like kind of opened up after they get all the way up. And one of the tubes got stuck. And oh, it's like Spinal Tap. Oh, Spinal Tap. Perfect. <laughs> it was full on Spinal Tap. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and they're, the the guys didn't sound very good, and I was really disappointed. Uh, uh, very, very disappointed. Um, they should know better than that. I mean, they, they chose poorly yeah, coming up out of pods. Movie? Oh, man. Bring the Stonehenge down, man. Come <laughs> was, on, man. It was really, really, really bad. So I was put off of paying for concert tickets for a while after that. But Prince is definitely the best concert I've ever seen, by far. Mm. Yeah. How many times did you see him? Just the once Just on the, the Musicology time. Tour. When are you playing near indie again? I'd love um, to come hear you, but I'm out on the road right now, too. With the Coog? Yes, sir. The Coog. Yep. I did a show with him at the Vogue really? Theater years and years ago for, for a radio station there in Indy. It was I worked me. on that show. A Q95? W- yeah. Or ZPL? It was, it was ZPL, That's, actually, yeah. It was a Christmas thing. I think it was uh, me, Josh Stone, and John. Oh, I yeah. remember that. And, yeah. uh, I kind of remember something about that. I don't think our full band played, though, did we? No. No, no I think he the played the tracks. Show? I think he might have played the tracks or something. I don't remember exactly. No, I don't think he would have done that, but he, he probably played acoustic. Mm-hmm. I'm really impressed with your voice, man. You have, you know, you make it seem so effortless. Me but- too, Mark. 100%. You know, what's interesting about this project with Joe um, is that some of the songs are vocally t- challenging, like Little Milton, you know, is pushing at the top of my range. Al Green is pushing at the top of my range. But then there's like the Sun House and the Howlin' Wolf. They're really low, technically very easy for me right. to sing. It's more about getting into a character than it is doing yeah. tricks vocally. And uh, funny enough, it was the songs that I could put on cruise control that were the most impressive to the guys in the studio. I'd sing the little Milton and and it, they'd be like, yeah, that was a good take, buddy. I'd sing Howlin' Wolf and Joe came out and was like, that's the second coolest thing I've ever seen in the music business. Wow. Wow. Like, nice. This is interesting. watching you. So you didn't labor over these vocals. Did you just do a few takes or how, how'd you go about it? Typically uh, when I'm cutting vocals, I would just, uh, I'll do like four takes, four to six takes and we'll build a comp out of sure. that. This project was not a whole lot different, although some of those less technically difficult songs, uh, there wasn't much else to do after take one. It was like, that's kind of it. You yeah. know, they're not going to be doing much else. Yeah, I wasn't taking liberties uh, where they where they didn't belong. You know, I wasn't going to go and do a bunch of tricks on on uh, on songs that didn't warrant it. So um, I would basically some of these songs. It was sing the the scratch vocal, and that that's pretty pretty good. Um, yeah, but for the most part, we we build comps out of about four takes. Well, your sensibilities to pick the right stuff are fantastic, man. I couldn't have done it without Joe and Josh, though. I got to say that because the blues has always been in my wheelhouse, but it's not my area of expertise. I'm definitely way more familiar with Donnie Hathaway's catalog than Bobby Blue Bland's catalog. Sure. Always had a lot of love for Bobby's stuff, but just never dove into that end of the pool because mm. I was such a soul oriented singer. So I knew that I could sing the blues, but I just, I was super unfamiliar with the genre uh, as a whole. 
So I never would have landed on these songs had it not been for those guys con contributing to the to that that process. Interesting. So I'm immensely grateful that that they stepped up where they did. Well, when I was listening to Use My Imagination, honestly, I just said, what a fucking good band. Honestly, it just became evident to me that then I looked up and I realized who was in your band. The biggest reward I've gotten so far was Bobby Blueland's son, Rod, sending me a video of him listening to, to the tracks that I did on this album and then just tears streaming down his face. Oh, man. Oh, wow, man. Really, How really, cool really is really that? a beautiful moment for me to, That's to get fantastic. that kind of thumbs up from Bobby's son, you know? Sounds like they chose the right songs for you. Yeah. Yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. Sounds no like doubt. you're the right singer to sing that music, man. That's for sure. Joe was very complimentary as well. Uh I I I heard from my manager that he told his manager that this is one of the best albums that his label has ever or will ever put out. Mm -hmm. So I, nice. and then we debuted at number 1 on the blues charts, which I did yeah, not I expect. I haven't that, paid yeah. attention. Come on. I haven't paid attention to the charts or to to the awards and all that stuff for a very long time. It's been at least a decade or more since I've just stopped caring about that stuff. So when I saw the post go up on my own Instagram, I said, oh, what? Wow. Number one? What? <laughs> I was very surprised. and, and very You deserve surprised. it, man. It's great. Thank you. Great record. Appreciate yeah, that. I always like doing these interviews because I get to hear about other musicians that I'm not familiar with, like Emily King. I've never heard of her, but I'm... What's the other girl? Uh, uh, Madison Cunningham. Okay. And then there's also a group out of Manitoba, out of Winnipeg, called the Brothers Landreth. That are phenomenal. I mean, Joey Landreth is an incredible player. He's a slide player. <clears throat> He's an incredible player. His voice is, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. But he's got, uh, I just recently discovered his cover of a Jeff Buckley tune that's one of my favorites of all time. Great singer. A, a song called Lover You Should Have Come Over. And then Joey's version is, I, I sat there in tears listening What's to his it. last name. Oh, Landreth, wow. just like Sonny Landreth, uh, Joey Landreth. The brothers. Brothers Landreth. They're great. Okay. But they're Canadian, so I mean, are you sure yeah. they're good? They're, they're <laughs> fantastic. Trust. Trust. But what he I don't know, Hugh. I know they're not very Here good. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> well, come on. I think Mark just presumed we're all from Indiana when you introduced us, but I always bristle a little bit when I hear you say we're from Indiana, when in fact, I am a Canadian, so. Oh, all right. I, but, yeah. you're a, but you're a Hoosier now, man, so just you got to uh, accept it. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what. <laughs> tell you what, you, you're starting to get some pretty good hillbilly in you. You're getting there. Yep. Awesome. We're learning you. Well, Real thank you, good. Mark, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate the time. Best of got luck it. to you and continued success and all you got going on. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Y'all have a fantastic one. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, 
and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.